This is uh, Malachi chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, 1 through 8. This is um, a sobering text, as many of the texts and passages are in Malachi. So prepare your hearts to be met by sobriety, but by God's grace, prepare your hearts to be met by his mercy and love as we unpack it together as well. And now, O priests, this command is for you. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll tell you again. We're in Malachi 2. I'm going to read Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Let us pray. Lord, I am so grateful right now in this moment for the blood of Jesus Christ. For the Lamb of God who makes a way for us, for me, in preaching this text and for us in listening to this text that I could never have in my own deserving. But that through Jesus Christ, there is a throne of grace and mercy open to me and to all of us where we can now come by your command with boldness to say, give us grace, give us mercy for this time of need. And I need help right now. Lord, would you give me grace to preach with integrity, to honor your word? To walk and speak in humility in this moment with your people. Would you give your people grace to hear you through this message. Lord, I put my hope in Jesus Christ because I have no other hope and we have no other hope that you, because of him, through him, will be merciful to those of us in him for his sake and because you love us. And if there are any in this room who do not know you as their savior and as their Lord, would you please speak to them and create life? As Deb and Chris remind us this morning, you have power over every heart. And would you turn every heart, whether that person is now your child or right now a child of wrath, would you turn their heart to you? And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In chapter 1, Two weeks ago, la remember last week was sort of an interruption on how do we look at Malachi in light of the new covenant. But, but the week before, we saw the Lord rebuke these priests for offering the least valuable sacrifices to the Lord. 
the worst sacrifices because they had a terrible view of God. God called this a despising of his name, a refusal to give him the honor of a father and the fear due a master. And today we read the Lord warn the priests and, and make another elaboration on a different aspect of their failure before him. Because this passage today highlights a vital part of the ministry of the priests in the Old Covenant that we may not be as aware of. Because the priests in the Old Covenant were charged not only to offer sacrifices on behalf of God to his people in the temple, the blood of goats and bulls, but they were also called to teach God's people. So to get a picture of this in the text, it's important for us to understand that there were 12 tribes of Israel after the 12 sons of Jacob And of those 12, there was one tribe, the tribe of Levi, who alone were singled out to be priests. They alone were singled out among all the tribes to be the priests and serve in the temple with those sacrifices and also to instruct Israel according to the law of God, according to the old covenant, the law of Moses. If you look at verse four, God speaks of my covenant with Levi. I don't think he's talking about the whole old covenant of Moses. He's not talking about the new covenant. He's talking about a specific agreement, I believe, he made with Levi. Or, and Levi is the name of that man who's the father of all these Levites. So when God says Levi here, he's not necessarily talking about that one guy, Levi, but Levi's people, his descendants. So God made this agreement with the Levitical pr- people, the, the tribe of Levi. And he says, my covenant with Levi to be his priests for the rest of Israel. And the Lord speaks of a past in which the Levitical priests served with honor in their teaching. And he says this in verse six and seven, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So it's clear the ministry of the priesthood involved a crucial teaching element to guide the people according to the commandment of God and not just sacrifices in the temple. 2 Chronicles 15.3 talks of the, quote, teaching priest in the context of the law of God. Deuteronomy 33.9-10, we hear Moses blessing over the tribe of Levi and he blesses them with these, these words, they The tribe of Levi shall teach Jacob your ordinances and Israel your law. So last week we talked about trying to make connections between the old covenant and the new covenant. We see a crucial one here. As we try to connect this old covenant nation with our new covenant church, we see a clear link between the teaching priests and the role of the pastor teacher or elder given to the church in Ephesians 4, 11, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. These are gifts given to men to be gifts given to the church to be able to shepherd the church with God's word. Every elder is is called to be able to pastor and shepherd people. And in the scriptures you see specific elders at times are called to more specifically focus on teaching and preaching. So as we look for these values that transcend covenants, that cross over covenants, we want to make these connections today to teaching elders. And what we normally call teaching elders is what you normally think of as pastor. Um, in particular, in, in, uh, we also, so, so you would think of me as a teaching pastor or teaching elder. Sometimes you'll look at a church and you'll see different, you know, pastor of administration, pastor of counseling, pastor of youth, or you'll see teaching pastor. Um, and all the elders or pastors slash pastors should be able to teach. They should be able to handle the God, handle the God, handle God's word. Um, but sometimes, and you see this in scripture too, that teaching ministry is particularly concentrated in, in a specific person who's called to do that. And that's what I am right now to our church. I'm a teaching pastor. Um, I, I, I'm not just a pastor who's able to teach, all elders are supposed to be able to teach, but I'm one who actually is called right now in this, by God's sovereignty right now, to do that. Um, and when I say called, I'm not saying I saw a vision. I, <laughs> I, I mean that the circumstances of life and, um, and our church have led to this place where I am right now, the only teaching pastor <laughs> that you guys have currently in this season. And I pray to God that that will change, that I won't be the only 
guy giving sermons in the future, but that there'll be more. Um, but that's where we are right now. And so there's a there's kind of a, a I can't get away from this. There's like a, a focus on my particular role, and there's a lot of um, intensity in this passage on that. And this has been a hard passage this week to look through. It's been healthy, but it's been difficult because of that for me. Um, so what I want to do is I want to go through this text and draw your attention to this great theme of, of God's concern for these teachers. And there'll be a lot of implications for pastors, elders, um, for Mike too, as an interim elder, and, and, and there'll be a lot of implications for all of us though. Because as we think about the priesthood, one of the things we have to do moving from the old covenant to the new covenant is recognize that we are all priests. And, and you see in the New Testament, we are all called to admonish one another, to exhort one another, to counsel one another, and to teach one another. You can find all those principles in scripture. It's not just a, a teaching pastor's job to teach. It's all of our job as a church to teach and instruct each other. So there'll be a, a application for and implications for everybody and not just me. Um, but let's start with the, the first big theme in this text. I, see th- I saw three big themes. We'll, do, we'll plan on three, but I might pull out one for another time depending on time this morning. But the first big theme I want to draw your attention to is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Because w- what seems clear to me as I looked at this text is that the most critical issue in a priest's ministry in Malachi was their fear or their reverence for the Lord. That's what really jumps out in this text. What was the critical issue for them was their fear or reverence of the Lord. In verses four to five, the Lord explains why the priests of old, who were members of the tribe of Levi, cared for the people so well. And listen to how he explains why they cared for the people so well. This is starting in four. I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. And after he says that phrase, he feared me, he stood in awe of my name, the Lord says, true instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace. He turned many from iniquity. So I, I think it's not wrong to, it, it, to, to almost put an imaginary conjunction in there and say, he feared me, he stood, on my, he stood in awe of my name, therefore, because of this, true instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from iniquity. Fear of the Lord was the foundation. Awe of who God was, was the foundation for the faithfulness of the priests. And when we think of the fear of the Lord, we don't want to think of horrified terror. That's not what the Lord means by the fear of the Lord. He's talking about a reverent awe that is able to perceive God's glory in the heart and tremble at that with deep and holy reverence. Levi and his descendants feared the Lord greatly. They stood in awe of who he was and this was central to why God sent them apart, set them apart to be priests. In Exodus 32, we find a dramatic and heartbreaking story from Israel's early history, which I think is directly related to this covenant of Levi. My covenant was with him, this agreement. What was the origin? What was the circumstance of this agreement? And we see this story in Exodus 32 that draws this agreement out. And it's, it's powerful, difficult, heartbreaking, amazing. This is in Exodus 32. Moses is on the mountain. He's receiving the Ten Commandments and the law from the Lord. And while he's doing that, Israel grows impatient. And they decide to fashion their own God. And call it Yahweh. They make a golden calf. They begin to bow down before it and adore it and worship it. It's hard for our Western minds to even imagine this, like to think that would do anything for everybody, isn't it? It's it's we're enlightened people. We're we're postmodern. We 
you know, we're, we're more sophisticated for these kinds of things. Naturalistic materialism, it may reject God, but it doesn't embrace, typically, golden calves. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the lust, the passion, the intense desire these ancient peoples had for idols. But to them, idols were means of security and control in a world that they understood better than we do was not in their control. These were people who had to pray every day for their food very often. These were people who, if the rain didn't come this year, their children would die. These were people who didn't know if there was an army on the other side of the hills who was going to come and take their land and take their wives and eat their kids. These were people who had no life insurance or health insurance or two weeks each week salary. So they knew that this universe wasn't under their control. But if they could get an all-powerful or very powerful deity and they could make up the rules on what to do with that deity so that, that those, all those things that were not in their control could suddenly be under their control because they made this thing, it's this kind of deity and now they could capture it and see it and they could offer their things that they th- to get what they need out of it. They could control their world. They could find safety again. They could find security again. And they could be at peace. And so they lusted after these things because it meant their salvation. It meant their safety. It meant their peace. The, the, the closest analogy me, we might have now is the desire we have, many of us, m- maybe most of us often at one time or another, <laughs> for money. In fact, the Bible calls greed, in Ephesians, the Lord calls greed idolatry. We look for security and safety and hope and peace in money. When we have a lot of money, we just feel better. When we don't have a lot of money, we just feel shaky because we see money as security, as safety, as a way to control our future. If we can just have more money, then we can have security. We're safe, we're saved. Or maybe perhaps for you, especially for some younger folks, but maybe for all of us at one time or another, we might be able to relate to idolatry when it comes to maybe an obsession with a person, a relationship, a romantic relationship that's captured your heart to such a degree that you say to yourself, maybe you don't even mean to say it, but it just operates in your heart. If I can just have that person, if I can just get them to care about me the way that I want them to, I will have peace. I will have safety, I will have security. And so you lust after their attention. You lust after them wanting you. And of course, God wants us to to have deep, meaningful relationships. He wants relationships to matter to us. He wants relationships to matter to us so much that when they fail, they hurt. But he doesn't want them to be our ultimate hope, our ultimate security. So those are some ways that maybe we can relate to idolatry. But, but among these ancient peoples who had no doubt about the supernatural, who had no, who, no, no problem understanding their own limitations, and who, who believed and saw because of all these things that were made that there must be a higher power out there, idols were very powerful for them, for peace and for hope. And they deeply, deeply offended God. Idols took the place that only God was to have in their hearts, their hope, their security, their safety. To have these idols was a violation of the greatest commandment, to love God. It was a violation of the first commandment, to have no other gods before him. And so when Moses comes down from Sinai, he's furious. After all the Lord has done to free them from Egypt and to open the waters, Destroy Pharaoh's army. These people have committed spiritual adultery. And he's furious. And among all the peoples, there's one tribe that stands up and says, we'll do something about this. And it's the Levites. In a horrible, 
way, but in a powerful way, they defend the Lord's honor. I, I say horrible because of how sad it is. I don't think it was horrible in another, I think to God it was grieving and sad, but I also think in another sense for God's honor, it was very commendable, which is hard for us to understand. But they are commended for what they did. Because on that day, when Israel turned to idolatry and rejected their God, the Levites defended the Lord's honor. In obedience to the Lord, they put to death 3,000 fellow Israelites who committed adultery. They killed them. 3,000 people. They went throughout the community and they took their swords and they struck them down. And this bitter event was an expression of great faithfulness to the Lord at great cost to them. And afterwards, the Lord confers this priesthood on him. This covenant comes to them. This honor is bestowed upon them. And here's what Moses says through the Holy Spirit. He says, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one of each one of you Levites, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother. So God does not gloss over this. He doesn't act like it's not a big deal or a big loss or a crushing, heart-ripping event that just took place in these priests' lives. He says, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother. so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The Levites in this event revered the Lord so much that they stood against their own flesh and blood for the Lord. And for that expression of faithfulness at such a cost, the Lord ordained them that day to become intercessors for their own flesh and blood. Now, don't miss this. This is a powerful symmetry here. God moves these Levites from executioners for him in order to punish the people. He moves them from that to become intercessors for the people in order to bless the people. Did you see that? Because they said, we will fear the Lord and stand in awe of him above all people, above all the people, God says, now you will be my intercessors for the people. You will be my instrument to sustain and to bless and to pour out mercy on the people. The fear of the Lord and the reverence for him above all things made them ideally suited to care for the people on his behalf. It was their awe of God that ensured their faithfulness to teach the people exactly what God commanded. The fact that they didn't fear the people more than God meant that they could now serve the people. Do you get that? The fact that they feared the Lord and stood in awe of him more than the people meant that they could now love the people as they should. Do you get that? If they had loved the people more than God, they could not serve the people for God. If they had loved the people more than God, they could not truly love the people. And all this is being reversed in Malachi's day. They were not teaching the people truth because they didn't fear the Lord. They didn't stand in awe of his name. What showed up in chapter one in the way that they treated the Lord in the temple with these roadkill sacrifices, it shows up here in chapter two in the way they treat the people with false and empty teaching. And of course, this makes perfect sense. If, if one doesn't truly fear the Lord in their personal worship, they can hardly be expected to represent the Lord with fear to others. In Matthew 10, the Lord Jesus says hard words that really echo that day in Exodus. Think about that day in Exodus as you listen to the words of the Lord in Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Think about Moses' words again from Exodus to these Levites. Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and brother, so that the Lord might bestow a blessing upon you. Whoever loves his mother, father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now let me make something perfectly clear. First of all, this is an easier one. There is no New Testament command to ever put anyone to death. There's no New Testament command to ever put anyone to death for any reason ever again. You, church people. I'm not saying in your capacity as soldiers or your capacity as uh, working at a prison, if there's a death penalty situation, I'm not talking about that. In your capacity as brothers and sisters, there is no, there's not gonna be any call on your life to put your brothers and sisters in your church family to death physically. The only command to put anything to death we find in the New Testament is our own sin. Hopefully that doesn't need to be said, but just in case. (laughs) The role of the church on earth is not to put sinners to death. The role of the church on earth is to call sinners to life, to call them to lifelong repentance through faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not talking about literal swords when he says I've come to bring not peace but a sword. He's talking about loyalties. He's talking about competing allegiances. He's talking about who will truly own your heart. Who will you truly love and worship and serve first above all others? And let me make something else clear too. No one wants you to love others more than Jesus Christ. The desire you have to love your mother, your father, your son, or your daughter, your spouse, your coworker, your unsaved neighbor, it pales in comparison to God's desire for them, for their good. You can't compete with his love for those people or with his desire that you be an instrument of his love in their lives. No one wants you to truly love anyone more than Jesus. No one wants you to truly love your mother and father, your family, more than Jesus. No one knows, in fact, and let's think about you because Jesus says, whoever loves their own life more than me. Let's not get this wrong. No one knows more clearly that you were created to have a natural God-given love for yourself. Everywhere the Bible assumes that we love ourselves. When Jesus says something like, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, he's appealing to you based on your desire for life. When he says, come to me, whoever is thirsty, and, and drink, he's appealing to you based on your desire to not be dying of thirst spiritually, emotionally. When he says, whoever's weary or heavy burden, come to me, he's appealing for our desire to be happy and at peace and not crushed by the weights of things. God designed you to want peace and happiness for yourself. That is not a sin. That is good. It's from God. It's what God is like. He wants peace for himself. He wants joy for himself. And you're made in in his image. But there are times, often many times throughout the day, there are long seasons in life when we have to choose. When we have to choose between being what someone wants us to be, saying or doing what someone wants us to say or do, and choose between that or being what Jesus wants us to be. 
saying what Jesus wants us to say or being quiet when Jesus wants us to be quiet. And each of those times, Jesus says, choose me. Choose me. And you'll find life. So there's no contradiction in these occasions between choosing Jesus and loving people. Choosing Jesus first is how we're able to love people. But we have to choose him first. You cannot serve a family member if your greatest loyalty is to their approval. You cannot serve your family if your greatest loyalty is not to Jesus but to their approval. And when they want you to live in such a way that you know it dishonors the Lord. You can't love the Lord and seek their approval. I can't, I can't serve my children. I mean, this is an easy one. Sorry, Marie and, and the boys. But <laughs> and by the way, Marie, you're, you're, you're leading well in this, in our, in our home. But, but I, I can't serve my children and our family in devotions when we try to sit down and sing to him and read about him and pray about him if my greatest loyalty is to their heart's desire to do whatever they want in these moments. I can't serve them. It's bedlam. <laughs> I, I must choose to follow Jesus and where needed, I must discipline my children to show respect for the Lord and his words. I have to do that in love and self-control and fight to not be a crazy dad, but, but I, I can't love them if I just seek their comfort in that moment. I can't serve my wife in our conflict. If my greatest loyalty is to my anger above Jesus, I cannot love my wife. If my greatest loyalty is to not say something that I think Jesus wants me to say to her, I can't love Jesus. If my greatest loyalty is to bitterness, instead of seeking Jesus' command to ask for her forgiveness and to forgive her, I cannot love her. And of course, there are times where pastors cannot serve their churches if they only preach and teach what is most comfortable for their members to hear. And there are times where pastors cannot serve their churches if they preach what they want to preach instead of what God may be wanting them to preach that in, in some cases might be more gentle and more kind and more hopeful than the desire they might have to, to preach a fire and brimstone message when a fire and brimstone message is just going to crush people today. And other times when a fire and brimstone, brimstone message is exactly what their people need. So it takes discernment, but Jesus has to be first. And, you know, we're getting to a time, it's funny what the if-gathering lady talked about, about the darkness all around us. I mean, I, I, it, it could get pretty dark around here. <laughs> I, I saw an article this week in which a pastor from a province in Australia, I saw this in a Nine Marks article, if any of you are familiar with Nine Marks. But this pastor from a, from a state like Virginia, Maryland, Australia has those two. He was from a state in Australia and he cited in his state this bill that had just passed called the Conversion and Suppression Practices Bill. Let me read you what in this Western nation, Australia, with uh, formerly Judeo-Christian values that we would call one of our great allies. We would all go there and have a great time and speak their language and understand a lot about their culture because we both came from, a lot of us came from, um, a lot of their culture comes from England like a lot of our culture does. It wouldn't look like Pakistan to us. But here's what he writes about this bill that just passed in Australia's state, Victoria. He says, the conversion and suppression bill criminalizes any prayers criminalizes any prayers or conversations in which one person aims to persuade another that pursuing sexual activity 
is not the best course of action. It, not only, it is not only illegal to pray or speak with an individual about changing their sexual orientation or gender identity unless, of course, this change means embracing an LGBTIQ lifestyle, then it's okay. The law also states that suppression is also illegal. Suppression is also illegal. Not just prayers or conversations about conversion away from homosexual lifestyles to heterosexual lifestyles, but suppression includes prayers for celibacy and any advice that communicates sexual faithfulness to one's spouse is a matter of holiness. This is insane, right? Everybody can feel that. Like, this is crazy. How is this possible? Do you know that in Maryland, if you're a young person who's struggling with same-sex attraction, but you as a young person, not because of your parents, but you as a young person feel that you don't want to become same-sex dominated in your attractions, but you want to get help recovering or having other sex, heterosex attractions, it is illegal in Maryland for a counselor to help you with that. I think that bill passed last year, signed by Governor Hogan, or two years ago at least. It's illegal. It's called conversion therapy. It's illegal. Now, churches can still do this. We can still preach the gospel because that would infringe on our, um, uh, our First Amendment rights to religion and worship. <coughs> so if that's happening in Australia, not in Pakistan, where I mean, it's the last thing that's going to happen in Pakistan right now, but they have other problems. But, but if that's happening there in Australia, and now in Maryland, it's illegal for a 14-year-old who wants to get help to be hetero-attracted, how far are we away from this? I tend to think it's more probable than not that this kind of law will be enacted in our nation in our lifetime. I mean, I hope, I hope, I hope it won't be. But I tend to think it's more probable that it will be. I don't know. And maybe this will be struck down in Australia. Maybe they'll take it to the Supreme Court and violate some larger right. I don't know. But it is on the books now. So my question for you guys and for myself as I think about these things is how can a pastor be faithful to preach God's word which clearly, my conviction is that, is that God's word clearly condemns homosexual activity. And God's word clearly condemns all who embrace that sin to run to Jesus for mercy, forgiveness, and a new heart. How can a pastor do that in, in, in the kind of climate where he knows he might face a 10-year imprisonment or a $10,000 fine? Those are both options. Or up to 10 years in Australia. How will he be faithful? How am I going to be faithful? This is what must compel him in those moments. God's mercy must work in him the same work he worked in those Levites that day when they stood in awe of his name. When they stood in awe of his name. Even at the cost of their dearest things on earth. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you as well, <laughs> what is required of pastors in the Bible is commanded to all in the Bible. With the exception of the aptitude to teach, the teaching gift or the teaching proficiency, which is required of pastors, all the character attributes for elders that are required of elders are commanded to all people. Jesus was speaking to all his disciples when he said in the same chapter in Matthew that I just read from, when he said that we are all called to be loyal to him no matter what the cost. 
These are Jesus' words to you, brothers and sisters, not just me. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? He's saying, if they treated me like this, do you think you're going to get better treatment? Therefore, he says, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's so interesting in this short passage, in context, Jesus says, fear and don't fear. Fear and don't fear. The holy fear of the Lord conquers every other fear. The holy fear of the Lord conquers every other fear. But the priests in Malachi's day had no fear of the Lord. They had no reverence for his name. They sought to please themselves. And in doing that, they were destroying the people. Verse 8 says, You have turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. In Malachi's time, if the people did not want to bring their best sacrifices to God, the priests were happy to oblige. Neither did they. No need to rebuke or correct the people. If they wanted to abandon their wives and forsake their brides, the priests were fine, apparently. If they wanted to unite themselves sexually to those who did not follow the Lord and become one flesh to those who worshipped other gods and gave no regard to Yahweh, the priests would not get in their way. If the people did not want to give their tithes and offerings as the Lord had commanded, the priests had no problem, I suppose, as long as they were able to satisfy themselves. This was a far cry from the true priests, of whom the Lord said, true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So, how should we think of this? Well, we have to remember we're a new covenant people. And we have to not be ashamed when we hear these words to run to Jesus and to run to the hope that we have in the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, the holy fear of the Lord and the power to love him above all others is ours in the new covenant. It is our heritage in the new covenant. 
More precisely, it is our inheritance because Jesus, who loved the Lord above all things, is our inheritance. It is our inheritance because Jesus, the spirit that he gives, is greater than our hearts. And his power and ability is greater than our weaknesses, is able to conquer our sin and give us strength that we do not have in ourselves. This is what the new covenant is for. For people who want to give up on God and turn the other way when life is very hard. Don't you understand that is why the new covenant exists? Why this covenant that we're looking at in Malachi failed? So what we need to do with this is say, Lord, my spirit is one with your spirit. You have not left me alone against my sin, against my fear, but you have come to me. You've not left me as an orphan, but you have come to me. And now you live into me to be my strength. So please be my strength. We must look to him in dependence and say, Lord, I will believe you. With even a mustard seed, I will believe you. This is going to sound maybe so trivial to some of you, but hopefully enough of you understand that the principles are principles, and sin battles are sin battles in one level. This morning I got up. There's a sports thing that happened last night. I really wanted, the, the thing I really wanted when I woke up was to find out what happened in that sports thing. And I didn't know if God wanted me to do that. It's Sunday, I'm preaching, I've been in his word. His word has been very serious. I don't, I don't want to get in the way of what he might want to do with me and my heart as I come before you. Or me and my heart and him. I just don't. But I want to know what happened. I want to run to that score. I want to get online and look at ESPN and find out. And immerse my mind and my heart. Just craved it. Oh Lord, I just want to get in that bath of sports. And that score and that athletic competition. And find out if my hero won and my hero lost. It just felt, I just had such a craving for it. And I thought, there's no way I'm not going to do this. Like, there's no way. I'm going to open that. I mean, it's only going to take me five minutes. But I don't know if I should. But there's no way. It's just such a huge desire. It's such a, and it's, I mean, I can't put myself on trial for this. Is that Ryan's phone? Is it Laura's? I was going to say, Ryan, we'll take that. If, if you come with that phone, we'll take that phone 24 hours a day. I mean, if we get you and that phone, we'll just play that the whole sermon. It's so good to see you, buddy. I can't wait to give you a hug. So... I, all I did was what I often do when I don't know what to do and it's early in the morning and I don't know how long I'm going to have for my quiet time or not. I just run to the Our Father. So I got on my knees. I'm like, well, at least I'll get to the Our Father. <laughs> and I did the Our Father. I said the Our Father. I prayed the Our Father on my knees by my bed and I got to that last part. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I went over to brush my teeth and I just heard those words. Albert, if you're not sure you should do this, probably shouldn't do this like whether or not it's okay if you're doubting it right now with such doubt you don't want to put that in the mix this morning before you preach and I heard the Lord say deliver us from evil lead us not in temptation and I knew he had power I didn't have and as soon as I acknowledged what the Lord was saying to me which was this isn't a good idea and as soon as I acknowledged he has power to deliver me from what I cannot deliver myself from. When those two things came together, when I acknowledged that what he said was true, that I probably shouldn't do this, and that he had power to deliver me from this, it was over. I didn't care. Not enough. I, I'm good. I haven't looked at the score. 
I know it's just a score, but it's not just a score. It's my affection, my loyalty, who owns my heart in this moment. And in myself, I'm helpless. But he's the one who said, if you ask me to deliver you from evil, I can do it. Will you believe me? Will you acknowledge that that's not right if I tell you it's not right? Will you, will you come clean on that? Now, come to me. Deliver me from evil. Lead me not to temptation. But if you're not willing to say this isn't right when I've said it's not right, and, and for me in that moment, I, it may not, by the way, some things we always know are not right. We can tell each other they're not right. A lot of things you can't tell me aren't right, I can't tell you aren't right, right? So very few of you would want to come to me and say, oh, it's wrong to look at a score for 30 seconds in the morning before you preach. Like, I'm not telling you that's your job or my job to go around. But in my conscience before the Lord, it just was not right. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? And therefore, it wasn't right for me. But I had nothing in myself to get out of that. And God had enough. I, I, need, I needed to say to him, Lord, you're right. This isn't right. Now, Dad, Father, Jesus, who lives in me, who's one spirit with me, would you do your thing? Would you be who you are? I need you. And, and I felt the Lord's call to say, will you believe me? You need to trust me. You've trusted me that this isn't right. Now you need to trust me for power. Walk. And I did. And I did. I, and I fail in those ways. I'm not trying to build myself up. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you that this is the new covenant. We have power that we don't have in ourselves now in Jesus. And he lives in us to give us that power. So other applications for this is to uh, please pray for me. Like, pray that I would be a pastor that would stand in awe of Jesus in such a way that I would love you as I should. Would you pray for me? John Piper, I heard a sermon of his on Malachi 2. I think it was from 1984. That day, he asked his people to pray for him every day. <laughs> I couldn't believe the audacity he had to say, would you pray for me every day that I would fear the Lord and serve you? Four decades have come and gone about since that prayer request. And I thought to myself, I know a lot of pastors who have shipwrecked. I know a lot of pastors whose stories have been soiled by doubt. Even those who haven't shipwrecked like Ravi. I know other pastors who you look at and you're just like, ah, I remember that thing. Oh, that was awful, <laughs> you know? I don't know what to say about them. I don't know how to think about them anymore. And I know John Piper's not perfect. I think he took some sabbatical about pride and like, 2016 where it seemed like the thing to do in the reformed pastors community was to take a sabbatical because of your pride and I'm sure it was a real thing for him he got marriage counseling so he's not perfect but but I got to tell you as far as I know and maybe horribly we'll find out someday but I, I thought if that man makes made it through four decades of pastoral ministry he's not an official pastor there anymore or at least not a teaching pastor anymore he's kind of retired but I thought four decades without a massive scandal, without any serious questions being raised about his morality or his financial impropriety or, or really crushing some suffering couple through some awful thing. I mean, as far as I know, I haven't seen anything like that. And I thought, if that's true, how much if that is because a lot of people that morning, when he said, pray for me every day, they said, okay. <laughs> and God said, I'm gonna work through your prayers. I'm not gonna ask you guys to pray for me any, every day, but I will ask you to pray for me regularly. I try to pray for you regularly. On Sunday nights when I'm preaching, I have a prayer swap with a few pastors, Kevin from Covenant Life, Kevin Rogers, and Eric Hughes from Chesapeake. I still meet with those pastors. Matt Make, I work with those pastors. I'm connected with them still. I wanted to tell you guys that as we, I thought about other things in this message, like accountability, accountability with Mike and, and what we've been talking about just in the last 24 hours. Um, but anyway, those guys I have this little group with and, and we'll shoot each other texts on Sunday night and say, prayer swap, <laughs> prayer swap, because we're, we're preaching and we're struggling and we need help. And Lori back, yep, prayer swap. So Kevin wrote me last night at 10.30, prayer swap. I just said prayer swap, <laughs> absolutes. So church, prayer swap. I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm trying to pray for you regularly. Mike is trying to pray with me for you regularly. Will you pray for me regularly? Will you pray for Mike regularly? I don't want to shipwreck I don't want to be a pastor if I'm going to defraud you. I don't want to do that for me. <laughs> did you hear what God said? What did he do to these priests? I don't want that to happen to me. 
I love being a pastor. I love serving you. As far as I know, I don't have any scandalous sins. I'm not addicted to pornography. I'm not having an affair with anybody, but I'm not perfect. As I looked through this passage, I thought about areas of my life I, that I need to do better in. Talk to Jesse and Luke about just my control of my day, my being a better steward of my time. Those aren't little things. They're required of me. And, and, and so I need your help. I need your prayers. Just like you need my prayers. Would you please pray for me? I'm scared. I'm not like chicken scared, but I'm, I tremble a lot about being a pastor. I don't want to be in this role if God doesn't want me in this role. And I want to be in this role. So please pray for me. And pray for, pray for our church to have good leaders who fear the Lord and love him so they will love you, who stand in awe of the Lord. Pray that Mike would stand in awe of the Lord and he'd be able to be my friend by telling me hard things. He, he does that. Maybe not as much as he thinks he should. I don't know. But, but he does tell me hard things. Pray for him to be able to keep doing that. Pray that God would raise up other elders and shepherds in our church. We have, a, we have, we have more people coming now. It's beautiful to see, but people need discipleship. They need mentoring. So pray that even, and, and we don't need we don't need like five elders to have discipleship, mentoring. This is your job. It's not like you, you can outsource this simply and only to elders. You're called to love one another, disciple one another, rebuke, correct, encourage, comfort one another. It's not just my job. It's your job. So fear the Lord and take that seriously. It's your job. This is your church. God's gonna hold you somewhat accountable for how you care for his church. But more than that, holding you accountable, he wants you to have joy in this. He wants you to reap great reward and fulfillment and joy. He wants you to have the greatest dignity a person could have, which is through his Holy Spirit, bringing Jesus to another person for their good pouring life and blessing and hope into people who have no hope and who feel cursed and who feel stuck. There is no greater joy than being able to glorify Jesus in such a way that other people see Jesus in you and through you. And because of that, they begin to reflect Jesus. That's what you were made for. It's not just, I'm going to hold you accountable. It's a, there's no greater vocation than to be one who disciples others. So pray for yourselves. Pray for our church. That we would be a church that stands in awe of the Lord and fears him. And through that fear, it really shows up in the way we love each other. And disciple one another. And take each other's lives seriously. No point two. <laughs> We're going to stop with point. No point two and point three. We're going to hold off. We'll see what we do next week, but I think it's time to go to the Lord's Supper. Let's do that now. Run to the new covenant. Would you guys take up your, your bread and your juice and take a moment? Brothers and sisters, we conclude this morning remembering once again the failures of the leaders in Malachi should not be considered our destiny in Jesus Christ. We have a better covenant with better promises. We don't have the Levitical priesthood. We are all priests under one great high priest. We have a great high priest who offers not the blood of goats and bulls, which could never take away sins, but who has offered for our sins once for all time, his own blood, the blood of the eternal Son of God, which is very pleasing to the Lord and very sufficient to cover all our sins, which brings great satisfaction to God's heart for our rebellion and equity and transgression and brings everlasting atonement to us because Jesus is so worthy. We have a great high priest who not only commands us how to live, but gives us a new heart and his very own spirit so that we can live through his life in us. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses 
and never, ever stops interceding for us. We have a great high priest who grants us, as those in him, immediate and eternal access to the throne where he dwells, his Father's right hand. And we come there any time for the grace and mercy we need. This is our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who succeeded in every way the priests in Malachi failed. He has given us not only a better priesthood, but a better covenant. Let's celebrate that covenant. New heart, his blood, and his spirit.